you have your Bibles, go with me to the book of Ephesians. We've been working our way through the book of Ephesians quite slowly here. This week, we'll be looking at verses 9 and 10. I have to give a another quick thing before we kind of get started here. I'm sure on the back of many of our minds is the decision that was ruled out by our Supreme Court, the United States Supreme Court to be more specifically, to be more specific. I'm sure that is on the back of our minds. And uh, so I was searching the scriptures this week and reading by, by God's grace, I think. Um, I, I mean, knew that I knew the decision was coming, um, but for some reason it wasn't clicking that it was Friday. So as I'm studying the scriptures, just, all right, God, what's, what's been going on? What do we see that's the reality around us? And how do the scriptures speak to this today? And so kind of wrote this without that in mind, um, without at least not consciously thinking Friday. Friday kind of rolls around, kind of hits me and see what happens. And, I, and to be honest, my heart was in quite a turmoil um, for some good reasons and some sinful reasons. And to the sinful reasons, I turned to God and said, God, I don't how do we think about this? How do we think about this? And, and it was like God said to me, Matt, I, I've been preaching to you all week. Nine and ten have everything to do with Friday. And he goes, you just need to take what I've been preaching to you and, and apply it to your life right now. And I'm going, oh, okay, that's what I'm supposed to do. Praise God. So I kind of went back and rehashed and was, 9 and 10, what that means for us. And, and so I want to say, first of all, this, this is a sermon God preached to me this week. Uh, and I didn't know why. I know why now. Uh, at least I know more of why. And so I'm not going to address specifically Friday. I don't feel like I need to preach a sermon on Friday. I'm going to preach a sermon on the gospel. <clears throat> and then we can take the gospel and apply it to Friday. Okay, so want to do 9 and 10 and let 9 and 10 take care of Friday, okay? Amen. Let's do that. All right, with that said, I'm literally 99% of this was done not consciously thinking of Friday by God's grace. With that said, let's read. Let's read 3 through 10. Says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. And in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, 
which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Let's pray. Father, pray that your words would speak to our hearts in a way that only the revelation of yourself through your scriptures can speak to our hearts this morning. I pray that your people would love you more when they leave today. And it's in Jesus' name we commit this time. Amen. I want you to look, think about the brokenness of the world around us. These, these words carry so much more weight today than they even did on Thursday. Look at the brokenness of the world around us. The, the uncertainty of religious freedom to walk us through even maybe this very next decade. Think of the murder of faithful brothers and sisters in the faith in foreign countries. But wait, their lives maybe even on American soil. Or the cultural acceptance and government expediting of the sexual revolution. Or the daily slaughtering of children who have yet to breathe their first breath out of the womb. Just look at the brokenness around us, right? I pray that you and I have not become so accustomed to the brokenness of this world that the thought of such sinfulness falls upon a numb heart. How are we to think about such things? How are we as the people of God to act concerning such things? Let me ask another question. How about the brokenness that we see in our own lives? Maybe it's the ongoing lust that entangles every thought. Maybe it's the equivalating of poverty and piety. Maybe trusting in the spending of money to ease one's stress. Or the continued idolatry of our offspring. Think about the brokenness that's even in our own heart and our own life. How much how much lacking in harmony and order do our own lives have? Where is the hope? I mean, this is a question we have to ask. Where is the hope for such wickedness that we see around us and that which we see even in our own hearts and our own lives, our own thoughts, our own emotions? You see, the world around us is not spinning in harmony. Instead, it spins in chaos. The creation, the Bible even speaks of the creation, even awaits redemption. If we think back to the garden, thorns still plague the working of the ground. How are we to think about such things? How are we to act concerning such things? How, what is our perspective when it comes to the brokenness around us, it brings me to, I, to 
my proposition, so my thesis, if you will, I, I see here in 9 and 10 for us today is this. God, God is uniting all things in Christ and has made us partakers in that endeavor. To that end, we labor, and for this reason, we hope. We say it again. God is uniting. When we look at the brokenness, when we see the destruction around us, we, how are we to think about such things? With eternal eyes, we say, we believe, we hope in the fact that God is uniting all things in Christ and has made us partakers in that endeavor And to that end, we labor, and for that reason, this reason, we hope. That's how we are to think about such things. I want you to think, so far, if you've read Ephesians, or you've been here as we've preached through these first seven or eight verses of Ephesians, I want you to think back very quickly about the gloriousness of, that we've seen in the past few weeks concerning my salvation and yours. That God would choose some from the camp of His enemies and send Jesus to save their soul and to save mine. This is glorious, right? This is wonderful that God would rescue people. But I want to propose that what we're going to look at today is even more glorious than that. It's more glorious than my salvation or your salvation. The uniting of all things in Christ is more glorious and more ultimate than anything else. We just need to praise God that our redemption is a part of that uniting of all things in Christ. So this uniting of all things, this, this is the redemption, if you will, setting free of all things and making prominent the one whom God has chosen to bring harmony through and under. We're going to talk about that and flesh that out this morning. We already read 3 through 10. Here's the first thing I want you to see. Church, I want to exhort you to know God's great mystery, the ultimate goal of the whole gospel. I want you to encourage you to know God's great mystery, the ultimate goal of the whole gospel. We're going to talk about what does it mean to know the mystery? What is the mystery? How is that part of the whole gospel? And just for clarification's sake, when we mean by whole gospel, it's just we just simply want to know what does all the Bible have to say about the gospel. We don't want a frail gospel. We don't want a handicapped gospel. We want an incomplete gospel. We want to, we want to take what does Scripture say about the gospel, the good work that God has done in Jesus Christ, that is good news for us. What is that? We want to understand all of that. That's all we mean by whole gospel. I want to encourage this church to know God's great mystery. Now, for the first few moments, I want to talk about very quickly about the kingdom of God as a mystery. Right? The kingdom of God as a mystery. We're going to explore this idea of mystery and the kingdom of God as a mystery. The kingdom of God is something that is not revealed to all people, but instead is hidden largely from the world. I want to read Matthew 13. This is 14b through 15. We'll come back and read a little bit more of Matthew 13 in a little bit. But look, just look at the second part of verse 14. It says, Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. That says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. 
For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. You know, the world around us can hear the truths concerning God's kingdom, but may never understand it unless God does something. So we can, you can proclaim, we can proclaim that God's design for marriage is one man with one woman in covenant relationship. They can hear it, but according to here and other passages, they will never understand it. You can proclaim that children in the womb bear the image of the Creator God. They can see it and yet never perceive it. You can proclaim that gender is wonderfully tied to the genetic design of a holy God and not to your emotions or evil desires, but they will never understand it. Now, as a quick caveat, that doesn't mean that we don't proclaim these things, okay? But we have to understand that these great truths are part of God's kingdom, and it may, it will not be understood by the world at large. Why? Isaiah tells us because hearts are dull, ears can barely hear, eyes have closed. As we think about this mystery, okay, it appears that as you study the scriptures more broadly, you'll see it seems that there's multiple mysteries in scripture. You have like the uniting of Jews and Gentiles and the uniting of all things and But I I want to propose to you, I I think that there is really just one supreme mystery, and that is salvation through the cross of Jesus Christ. I think that's the supreme mystery. And what we see in Scripture with these uniting of different things is different applications of that one supreme mystery. So I don't think there's multiple mysteries. I think there's one mystery, multiple applications of that mystery. But I want us to think for just a moment. We just can't pass over. Supreme mystery, salvation through the cross of Jesus Christ. That's amazing, right? I mean, again, I hope that doesn't fall on numb hearts. That God would save a broken world deserving of eternal destruction by the substitutionary death of His own Son. That's amazing. As my seminary professor would say, astonishing, right? It's astonishing. That God, listen, this is, that God would take upon Himself your sin and then take it upon Himself, the punishment for your sin. That doesn't make any sense. Every other religion in the world says to be right with the deity, you have to do A, B, and C. Here, the mystery is that in order for us to be right with our deity, the deity himself did A, B, C, and we did nothing. That's a mystery. That's a mystery that I struggle to understand. This is the way into the kingdom of God. This is the way to perceive the kingdom of God. This is the way in which we might understand the kingdom of God. It's through the mystery of 
cross, salvation through Jesus Christ. It is by salvation through the cross of Jesus whereby we receive new hearts, new ears, new eyes to see this kingdom that is invisible that the rest of the world cannot see. And he's given us eyes to see it. Like, like when you look, can you see it? You know what I'm saying? Like, can you see it? you see it in your family? Can you see it in your life? Can you see God's economy versus the world's economy and, and how they're at war with each other? And, can you see it? So there are, but there are multiple applications of this mystery. <clears throat> Again, I think this is where we kind of get confused if you've ever studied what are, what are the mysteries. So here in this particular text, Again, the mystery is salvation through Jesus Christ. We've seen that clearly. Redemption through the blood. That's the mystery. The mystery then is the application of that mystery in this context is the uniting of all things in Jesus. Now we'll flesh that out a little bit more. What is that uniting of all things in Jesus? We'll get to that in a few moments. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. If the world cannot hear, see, smell, taste, understand the kingdom of God because our hearts are dull, our ears can barely hear, and our eyes have grown closed, what do we do? What do we do? I mean, we must proclaim what the Word of God says. But here's where we have to be careful, okay? We have to be careful that we never trust and the world's obedience to God's law to save them. And I think many times as Christians, we proclaim God's standards and expect Him to live according to God's standards, and then we're okay with that. But just as you and I cannot be saved by obedience to the law, the world cannot be saved by obedience to the law. So we still proclaim the Word of God, but be careful that we don't expect them to earn their salvation by obedience to the law. We trust always and only in the gospel to save people. Upon this salvation, may the world around us receive new hearts, ears, and eyes in order to perceive the kingdom of God. We have to be, we proclaim the truth. Yes, what is marriage? What is, <clears throat> what is right to life? What do these say? We, yes, we proclaim these things. Yes. But they're not going to live that way until the gospel has changed their lives. So make sure we just, as a side note, that we're careful that we're not giving them law without giving them the gospel, okay? So we're proclaiming the truth. What is the way to the truth? Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, okay? Because if we're not careful, we'll be just Pharisees just like they were back in Jesus' day. You've got to do this, 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 and this. Yes, you've got to do this, 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 and this, but you can't do this, this, and this without the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's a free gift. We have to understand, also, when we think about this problem of being able to perceive this mystery, that this was many of us, and maybe even in this room, still some of us. That either we were unable to see the, the kingdom of God and perceive the mystery of salvation through Jesus Christ on the cross, and yet some of us, maybe even still today, don't see that mystery. Like we see it, but we don't really perceive it. We don't really understand it. So what hope is there? What hope is there? And that's why I want to say that God has predestined us to know His 
mystery. God has predestined us to know his mystery. I think if you look back at verse 8, he says, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. This is why I take all wisdom and insight to apply not to God, even though God is all wisdom and insight, but God has lavished upon us wisdom and insight. Why? So we would know. This is his doing so that we would know the mystery of his grace. So to those whom God chose, he talks about earlier on, even as he chose... Then he also predestined them to be sons. And then he also, those who would be sons, he is predestined to know his mystery. Now I know it doesn't say predestined to know, but that's following the vein of thought thus far in the book of Ephesians. So he's given them to be sons. He's also given them to know the mystery. Look in verse 9a. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to what? His purpose. Now again, I want to remind us, what does Matthew 13 say? Let's go back to verse 10. We didn't read this earlier. We'll read 10 and 11 now. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you, disciples, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Note, once again, a choosing here on God's part. God predestined some to know, and others He left not knowing. But why did they not know? This is the question. Why did they not know? It's not God's fault that they did not know. That's what we read on in 14. You can go back and read that later. Why? Because of cold hearts, barely hearing ears, closed eyes. This is why they did not know. But to some, God has given warm hearts to hear, see, and perceive the mystery. Namely, that Jesus Christ took upon Himself our sin and bore the wrath of God on our behalf. I want to encourage you that truly knowing also involves the heart. Truly knowing is not just knowing a fact, but is a fact that has essentially taken control of your whole life. I just want you to see, read Paul's doxology in Romans 16, okay? This is Paul's, like, worship, right? This is Paul's heart captivated for us to watch in these words that he says. Now to him, verse 25, who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the, what? The mystery, that, is kept, that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about what? The obedience of the faith. And then what's Paul say? To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Christ Jesus. Amen. To the only wise God be glory forevermore. Through Jesus Christ, amen. See, the revelation of the mystery churned the affections of Paul's heart. I'm going to spend time just beyond this this morning, but understand that the mystery captivates both our minds and our hearts as well. But God has lavished on us all wisdom and insight in making known to us the mystery of His will. 
again, the salvation of Jesus Christ and the cross of Christ. And I want to ask you this morning, do you see that? Do you see that? Do you see the mystery? Do you believe the mystery? Do you love the mystery? Do you live for that mystery? The next thing I want to just give a quick side note about is that it says in the passage that He made it known. He made it known. A couple quick applications of that. There's no room for pride. There's no room for pride, right? There's no room for legalism. Without God making it known to you, you'd be lost. You couldn't perceive the mystery nor the kingdom of God unless He enabled you to. You know, as we're living each day, let's remind ourselves, He made it known to me. He made it known to me. He made it known to me. Kind of the final thing that I want to point out to here, point out to you here about knowing this mystery is I just want to emphasize here that the mystery of God is knowable. I don't overlook the fact that it's knowable. We can know the mystery of God. We can, beyond the mystery specific, we can know the mystery more largely, and that is the kingdom of God. We can know these things. We can know the mysteries of God. We can know the mystery of the kingdom. It is not, I like what Lloyd-Jones says, it is not something that is incomprehensible to the human mind, but instead something that is undiscoverable by the unaided human mind. The human mind must be aided by the work of God in order to perceive the mystery of God. I mean, we live in an era, right? And this is, this, is not, this is not unique to our era. This is all time. We live in an era where, but we particularly have certain denominations around us, particularly that engage God's Word in such a way that this mystery is essentially unknowable. You have certain denominations and certain groups of Christians where the mystery of God is some mystical, always searching and emotionally, they're always trying to feel God's guidance when He has revealed His will in His Word. He has revealed His mystery to His people. He has made known His mystery to His people. And then we have other groups of Christians, or so-called Christians, particularly in mainstream liberal churches that want to make the Word of God such a mystery that we are left guessing God's decrees and God's will, and all of that, I think, in order to justify beliefs that the culture is demanding. The Word is unknowable. So you can hold that belief, we can hold this belief, we hold this belief, and you know, they, they all oppose each other, but, but we can't really know what God's will is concerning this issue, so we're just going to kind of go with what the culture says. No, God's will, God's decrees concerning His people have been revealed. He says He's made it known. It is knowable. Even in our church here, there's often talk about the difficulty of understanding these deep truths that God has given us in Scripture. 
these deep things that are hard to understand. And I agree, they are hard to understand. I want to read to you some encouragement from Lloyd-Jones. He says this, lastly, I love, I love this, and I delight to say this, because this is God's way, this Him revealing the mystery to us, there is hope for all to understand, as it is something which is revealed by God, and which He enables us to understand by giving us wisdom and prudence, intellect, or the absence of intellect, does not make a vital difference. The understanding which is given by God through the Holy Spirit is open to all. Amen? I want to encourage you. It's, it's more of an effort issue than it is an intellectual issue. It's more of a desire issue than it is an intellectual issue. We avail ourselves to the work of the Holy Spirit. And we do this largely times of prayer and times of study in the Word. He brings the understanding. He brings the knowing. He does the making known. I want to speak, kind of wrap that up. I want to speak just a moment. If you're unsure, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I want to ask you this question. Has God made the mystery known to you? Do you know the mystery? Do you know the mystery that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sin? That He paid the price for your sin? I mean, you, do you mentally understand that, that you have sinned just like everyone else in this room has sinned against the Holy God and that sinning against the Holy God requires eternal death and punishment as payment? But God has revealed His great mystery to us through Jesus and that mystery is that Jesus, that your sin can be hoisted upon Jesus and His death become the death that you should have paid. Does your heart love this? I want to encourage you to repent of your sin and trust that Jesus paid the price for that sin. May God open your eyes to see His kingdom. So as we wrap this kind of first sub-point up, which is the longest of all of these, just for the record. God decreed, in this next one, to reveal this mystery in Christ. He decreed to reveal this mystery in Christ, which He set forth in Christ. Basically what he's saying, that only those in Christ will be able to see the mystery since it's revealed to us in Christ. So there's a changing in Christ that happens that opens our eyes to see the mystery in Christ. Meaning, to look at Christ with God's wisdom and insight is to see the salvation of God through the cross of Christ. Basically this, when Jesus stepped foot on the earth, and God opened the eyes of His disciples. There standing before them was the mystery revealed. <laughs> we should continue. God's mystery and its application is a part of God's eternal decree. All of it. All of it. Not a detail left out.
at verse 10, first part. He says, as a plan for the fullness of time. He's revealed his mystery. If you go back and just put this together, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. What is this fullness of time? So God's great, God's mystery, of course, is the salvation of his people through the cross of Christ. The application of this mystery here is the uniting of all things in Christ. The timing of this marvelous work is the fullness of time. Now, I'm going to flesh all this out, but I'm going to take, I take this fullness of time to be an already not yet Paul thing. So there's an already reality to this and there's a not yet reality to this. So when you think of just very quickly here, Hebrews 1-2 says, But in the last days, these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom, this is Jesus, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. It's like this last days, this fullness of time, I think are similar, and that they speak of a future event, but also the days after Christ leading to that finale. So there's a, there's, yes, there's a culmination of all this fullness of time, and it will be full, but it is working towards that time, and it began at the Incarnation. So I want to argue God kind of broke time into two parts at the Incarnation, at the coming of Jesus Christ, as He breaks open the sky, coming in the form of a baby, begins the fullness of time, and that would be completed when He breaks open the sky again. Right? So it's that time in between, this fullness of time. So to set this revealing of the mystery, then the uniting of all things is happening from the time that Jesus steps foot on the earth until the time that Jesus comes forth one more time. God's plan, then, what that means is that God's plan is being worked out as a part of His eternal decree. And I think this brings me to the next kind of major point that I want us to see here, that the revealing of the mystery to your heart necessarily brings about the obedience of the faith. That's what we saw in the Romans passage. So what we've been saying so far in this series is that a whole gospel... Understanding the whole gospel necessarily leads to a whole life. Not whole life as, you know, we eat organic food and that kind of thing, although that's what you like, go for it. You can buy that $6 gallon of milk. A whole, I'm just kidding. I'm sure it tastes good. Whole gospel, <laughs> it's a joke, leads to a whole life. So I'm not talking about that, right? Not, not talking about the, the whole milk. I'm talking about a whole, li- a whole life devoted to the gospel of Jesus Christ. A whole life living for that truth. A whole life living to see and be a part of the uniting of all things. Okay? So Ephesians 10, 1 verse 10 rather, it says this, as the plan for the fullness of time to unite all things, things in heaven and things on earth. Here's part of why I believe this to be an already not yet, and that is this fact. The rest of Ephesians is going to expand on and exposit and explain to us what this whole gospel looks like in a whole life. Meaning, all of Ephesians is now going to expand and explain to us what it looks like with the uniting of all things in Jesus. 
What does it look like when all things are united in Jesus? He's going to explain that in the rest of the book of Ephesians. I think this verse right here, verse 10, is kind of the, the pivotal verse of the passage. So salvation leading up to the declaration. He's talking about salvation leading up to the declaration of all things will be united in Christ. And then past this, he's going to explain what does it look like for all things to be united in Christ. He's going to work through marriage. He's going to work through parenting. He's going to work through dead to life. He's going to work through all these things. All those things are describing and explaining what it means for all things to be united in Jesus Christ. So, my last major point is this. Church, we are called to unite all things in Christ with the ultimate goal of the whole life. We are called to unite all things in Christ. Look at me one more time at that Romans 16 passage. Verse 25. It says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery. So the mystery's been revealed. That was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed. So the mystery has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings and has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to do what? To bring about the obedience of the faith. I want you to see this. The mystery has now been disclosed, made known to all nations, to bring about the obedience of the faith. So the mystery that has been revealed to all nations brings about the obedience of the faith. What is the obedience of the faith? It's part of the uniting of all things. Again, the current reality with a future finale. We are seeking the obedience of the faith. We're seeking to unite all things in Christ, knowing that it will all eventually happen. You kind of liken it to this. I like to think of like with having three little boys. I've used this analogy a long time ago. Like kind of like I'm Papa Lion, right? And I got a little lion, and I just kind of walk on all fours and. And, and me and the little, my little son, and we kind of walk up to a bear, and, and, and the bear, the, my little son goes, Rawr! you know, right? Just a little growl. And, and what's the bear do? Well, hopefully he takes off running. Because why? Because Big Papa Bear's there. Well, what's really happening? Why is that lion really running? What, and here's the question to help understand. Why, does that, why is that bear running? Assuming the bear runs, he should run. What did the little roar, what was that little roar a part of? What was that little roar reminding of? Daddy's big roar, right? So the success of the little roar was guaranteed because of Daddy's big roar. His little roar was just a part of the bigger roar. What happens? God's plan is to unite all things in Christ. He said it. He'll do it. He has the resources to make it happen. You and I have just a little part of that uniting all things in Christ. We're just a part of God's sure plan. Now I want to think through this with you for a second. This uniting of all things, particularly that phrase right there. 
God will draw. Here's what He will do. Here's what God is going to do. Here's what He's in the process of doing. Drawing all the elements of the earth and heaven together in order to demonstrate the glory of His Son. Another way to understand this uniting of all things is to say God is going to sum up all things in Jesus. He's going to summarize all things in Christ. I want you to think about it this way. A speaker or a writer takes all the elements of their speech and their writing, right? So a good speech writer, a good orator, or a good speaker will take all the points of their writing, all the points of their speech, and at the end will pull them all together in order to demonstrate the main point of their speech or their writing. So you pull all the pieces together in order to summarize and bring forth to the surface the main point of what they were saying. Think of it this way. The exaltation of Christ at the end of time is the main point of God's creational composition. That the exaltation of Christ is the chief point of God's creational oration, His speech. With creation, with the world, He is writing, He is speaking, and at the end of it all, uh, what will arise will be the exaltation of Jesus Christ. As all of this is happening, for the main point that Jesus Christ will be lifted high. Let me explain it another way. God is going to conquer all powers and place them under Christ's feet. He's going to give the conquering Christ to the church. He's going to set creation free from the curse. He's going to deliver final judgment and final inheritance. He will rule over, we will rule over the angels. We will rule over the creation. All of these things will be drawn together and the one who will re- emerge from the beauty as the organizer of it all will be the exalted Jesus Christ. He's done it all. There will be Him. And church, we are agents of God's work. The uniting of all things for all of eternity. We are agents of God's work. We are a part of this organizing work that will all ultimately display when it's all put together, the main point of it all, from the garden to the fall to redemption to consummation, the whole point was that Jesus Christ would stand there in exaltation. The one who recreated everything. The one who has reorganized everything. The one who has reharmonized. Let me read to you Colossians 1, verses 15-20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. What is He doing? He's putting everything together. All things are held together in Him. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be what? Preeminent. He might be the exalted one, the one before all things. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by what? 
the blood of his cross. He will be the central feature that will be on display for all to see. The one in whom all was made and all will be redeemed. It's recreated, reorganized, reharmonizing everything. So what do we do? What is our part? We seek to unite all things in Christ. We seek to unite everything. Think about this with me for a second. Unity in the body, the body of Christ. Seeking unity in the body is a part of God's plan and eternal purpose. That's why we make such a big deal about unity here. I want to encourage you, lead your family to live in rhythm, live in unity with the body of Christ. Ask your kids, would they feel like the body of Christ is a part of their everyday life or just something they go to on Sunday? That probably speaks to your family's unity with the body of Christ and probably reveals your unity with the body of Christ. Another point, you know, the body overall is pressing hard to know the Scriptures. In order to stay unified, press hard to know the Scriptures. Work hard to know the Scriptures. How do we seek? I mean, there's many, many different ways in which we seek to be unified with the body of Christ. We can flesh that out some this week in house gatherings. Hope we have time to do that. How about unity in the family? I'm just trying, again, I'm trying to flesh out, just give you some ideas of where to take your thoughts this week as you think through how do, I, how do I unite all things in Christ? What does that look like? Where do I even begin? So unity with the body, unity in the family. I would encourage you, lead your family to seek the Scriptures, to know the Scriptures. Everybody wants, if you're married, everyone wants to have a good marriage. And if you don't, if you're not married you, and you want to be married, you probably want to have a good one, right? Probably want to have a good marriage. Here's the key. You both need unity in Jesus Christ, okay? It's, it's that simple and yet probably that hard, right? Because we want to unify around everything else. How do we have a good marriage? You have one that's united in Christ. You have a marriage that's united in Jesus Christ. That both of you love Christ. Both of you are seeking His Scriptures to know how to unite everything underneath Him. You don't get a good marriage by just lackadaisically following Jesus, How about unity at work? All right, so now we're kind of venturing into, uh, you've got people that, that probably don't care about what's going on in these scriptures. I want to remind you, the world isn't spinning toward order. The pole is toward chaos. What are we to do? We still speak the truth of God's word in every situation. Show the characteristics of the Father in every sh- situation. Guys, popular opinion will change. It has and it'll keep changing. But the Word of God remains the same. The Word of God is the best thing that you can serve to a world where the target's always moving. God's target never moves. We are simply partaking in the eternal decrees of God as we seek this unity. There's, think about this, church. There's no better place to be Where would you rather be than seeking to unite all things in Christ, which the Father behind you is doing that, has ensured that, is empowering that, and will make it all happen? There's no better place to be than seeking the unity in Christ. How do we do this? Just very quickly, seek to bring in everything under submission to Christ. What does unity in Christ look like? It looks like submission to Christ. 
everything around us, we bring to the loving submission of Jesus Christ. My kids, my family. I mean, I understand. Like, you can't, you can't make your coworkers submit to Christ. But you can help them. Like, by the power of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit, you can help them. You can lead them. God can use you to do that. We seek the exaltation of Jesus as the final organizer and Lord of our lives. That's what we do. We seek Jesus to be that. As you see, all around us is brokenness, isn't it? All around us. In our neighbors' homes, there's brokenness. The man pushing the cart down the street without a home, there's brokenness. In our own hearts, there's brokenness. You know, at the fall in Genesis, sin resulted in great tragedy, and ever since that day, it has been a long succession of very bad days. There are no good old days, okay? Just a long line of very bad days. I personally, this is my conviction, I don't think that the days have grown more evil. I think evil has just grown more publicized. I want you to think back to the garden. I want you to think about, just think of the garden with me for just a second. It doesn't get, in my mind, any worse than a man and a woman walking in perfect communion with God, enjoying every Pre- the presence of God, the very presence of God walking in the cool of the mist, enjoying the bounty of His grace, enjoying the freedom of being who God created them to be with no hindrances, enjoying the perfect serenity and harmony of creation, creation spinning and working together as God had created it to do, where everything is just as God had made it, enjoying the goodness of God's law, His law to continue to submit to his declaration of good and evil and trust in him as their sole provider of everything. And in the face of God's presence, in the environment of God's law beautifully on display, Adam and Eve say one, God, we know better than you. We can rule this world declaring what is right and wrong and so therefore organize the created order in a much better fashion. We got this. In my mind, it doesn't get much worse than that. And yet, Adam stood in the garden as the prominent created figure bringing order to the world. Expanding Eden, bringing the gloriousness of Eden to all of the world. He was the one who was exercising, organizing rule over the earth. Right? So he is naming the creatures. He is working. He is caring for the garden. He is the one that is propped up on display as glorious for working all of these things together. He is God's reigning and ruling on the earth. Organizing it all. And what happens? He fails. He fails. He says, God, I can organize all this better than you can. Now, though, 
in a culminating fashion, in an increasing fashion, Jesus will emerge as the Adam who always, always, always believes, loves, and submits to the eternal decrees of the Father. He is the one who says, always, 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 Father, you know how best to organize creation. You know how best things are supposed to function together. You have created it all to work together. And in Christ, all of the brokenness will be fixed. Everything will be put together. All discord will be tossed into hell. The world will be reordered. Harmony will mark the earth. And when the dust settles, when it's all said and done, there will be our Savior, Jesus Christ. When it all settles, everything's put back together, everything's fixed, there's no more brokenness, no more pain, God will go. He's the point. That's the main point. That's why I've done all of this. So that my son would be exalted, be the preeminent one, would be the prominent one, would be the chief point of all of my work. And we, my friends, get to be a part of that. We get to be a part of everything leading to that. We who came from dust get to be part of reorganizing the cosmos. What a picture. What an opportunity, church, that we get to be a part of. I think Paul saw this as he's writing these words. I'm convinced. Paul's perspective was eternity. When Paul looked, he saw the kingdom of God. I think one of the chief things he sees besides the work of Jesus Christ on the cross was the eternity of the kingdom of God. Never beginning, never ending. I want to leave you with these words from John Stott. He said this, It's at this point, it may be wise to pause for a moment and consider how much all of us need to develop Paul's broad perspective. Let me remind you that he was a prisoner in Rome, not indeed in a cell or dungeon, but still under house arrest and handcuffed to a Roman soldier. Yet though his wrist was chained and his body was confined, his heart and mind inhabited eternity. He's writing on Ephesians here. He says this, He peered back before the foundation of the world, and on to the fullness of time and grasp hold of what we have now and what we ought to be. And in light of those two eternities, he says this, As for us, how blinkered is our vision in comparison with His? How small is our mind? How narrow is our horizons? Easily and naturally we slip into a preoccupation with our petty little affairs. But we need to see time in the light of eternity and our present privileges and obligations in the light of our past election and our future perfection. Then, if we shared the Apostles' perspective, 
we would also share his praise. For doctrine leads to doxology as well as to duty. Life would become worship, and we would bless God constantly for having blessed us so richly in Christ. Let's pray. Father, you have indeed blessed us so richly in Christ. All that we had before Christ was nothing. And in Christ you gave us everything. Father, we see that your plan from eternity past is to unite all things in your Son, Jesus, to bring all things together so that when the dust settles, the brokenness is gone, harmony fills our ears like a beautiful piece of music. That the one behind it all will be the, your Son. That He will emerge as the one conducting the symphony. And Father, we get to be an instrument in your symphony. Father, may, we, may you give us grace to work hard, to unite all things, that we would be playing together in a way that glorifies and shows your desire and plan and process of uniting all things. Father, may our hearts beat to see your Son exalted. To see your Son be the main point. And Father, may that begin even in our own lives and own families and even in this church. Father, that, that as the dust settles each and every day of our lives, that what would emerge from the cloud it would be that Jesus was the main point of our day. And Father, I know we fail at that, we will fail at that, but we look in hope to the one who didn't fail at that every day as he closed his eyes. Your son Jesus, his life said that, Father, your work in him was the main point of the day. And Father, it's in him we place our hope. And we live in light of. Father, may that capture our hearts. Father, in your son's precious name we pray.